0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, don't eat red snow either. Biologists investigate the climate implications of what they call watermelon snow.
0: Well, it's a growth of microorganisms, primarily algae, and in this instance, it's happening on the surface of the snow.
1: And this bat has an intimidating organ, but it's not for penetration.
2: So to observe this pennies for the first time is really impressive. You uh, you will have this uh, very long and also very wide penis, ex- especially at the, at the terminal part. Plus, stripes turn out to be slimming
1: because spiders won't eat them, what it's like to have a third arm in your hands, and how biodiversity drives nature's pharmaceutical innovations. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Let's say you saw an animal with long, powerful legs. You might reasonably think it was adapted for running fast. Or if it had broad pectoral flippers or web paws, you'd assume it was a proficient swimmer. Or if it had sharp, stabbing teeth, probably a ferocious hunter. So, what if you saw an animal with an impressively long and agile penis? Well, I'm sure you might assume uh, certain things, but it turns out your assumptions might be wrong. Well, mostly wrong. The male of this species does use its penis for sex, but not in the way you might expect. This story starts when Dr. Nicola Fazel, a bat researcher working at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, got an unusual email about a very large penis. Now, normally you wouldn't open an email like that, but then he realized it was from a science-minded bat enthusiast in the Netherlands. We'll let him take it from here. Dr. Fazel, hello and welcome to our program. Okay, hello. First of all, Tell me about this email that you clearly clicked on, otherwise uh, we wouldn't be talking here today. What about it caught your attention?
2: I received this email and first I was thinking, okay, it may be uh, a spam. But then I thought, okay, it's it's about Eptesicus, which is the uh, Latin name for the species we were studying, and I thought, okay, that that would be too targeted for a spam. So I decided still to take the risk to open the link, and then I found those amazing videos of uh, of a copulation of these bats, and we could see that uh, the the bats have a very large penis in when it, when it's erect.
1: Okay, so we're talking about a species of bat here. Uh, wh- what species is it?
2: So it's called a, a common serotine. It's a kind of big, uh, big bats. One of the biggest in Europe in Switzerland. It loves to live in uh, in buildings, so it's very, very fond of churches, and um, it loves also to to eat some big flying beetles.
1: Now I'm going to read a sentence from your scientific paper. It reads: "Quote." With the erect organ seven times longer and wider than the vagina, its possible function becomes a perplexing question. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. So tell me
2: about this bat penis. To observe this penis for the first time is really impressive. You uh, you will have this uh, very long and also very wide penis, ex- especially at the at the terminal part. And uh, the terminal part is really interesting because it has the the, the shape of a heart, but um, turned. Uh, so the two lobes in front are, are quite difficult to imagine in, to penetrate. <laughs> How long is it? So uh, the the penis, uh, when it's erected, it's uh, 1.6 centimeters, so almost uh, two centimeters, and this is quite big. This really represents one fifth or one quarter of the the bad size. So besides
1: its size, that heart shape doesn't sound like it's designed for penetration.
2: Exactly, exactly. That was the big question we had: is that how how can you penetrate anything with this uh, shape?
1: Mm. Well, before you embarked on this study, how much did we actually know about how bats copulate?
2: or very little um, so bats normally copulate during uh, very secretive moments so they can be in caves or in, in the darkest place of a house so it's very difficult to observe any, any copulation and we were super lucky to have uh, Jan putting and fitting so many videos in, inside the church and also having our Ukrainian colleagues um, who worked uh, with bats in cages and who could uh, witness the, those copulation
1: Okay, so once you looked at all of these videos, what did you see? Give me a play-by-play of how these bats copulate.
2: Mm -hmm. So you will see a a female first and then you have this male that will just arrive and try to uh, kind of jump uh, jump on on her, so both are, are crawling and uh, the male will start to uh, bite the nap of the, the female. And then uh, once the female is a bit fixed, it will actually go with a very mobile uh, penis uh, around the tail membrane. Once it has found the, the, the place, it will uh, push against uh, this vulva um, and stay there quite for a long time. How long? So that was uh, quite a, quite a surprise. So uh, we had the median time, so the, the uh, not the average, but uh, a bit the, the middle one, uh, which was the most one hour. But then we had big champions staying uh, in copulation for more than twelve hours. Twelve hours.
1: <laughs> well, what what's the male penis doing during all of this time?
2: So the, the male penis stay uh, in front of the vulva. Sometimes he's pressing more or less, and then yeah, he's just staying um, in contact with the, the vulva.
1: In your paper, you describe the bat penis like an arm reaching under the female.
2: So you have to imagine that the the female, but like the male, they have a tail membrane. So between their legs, they have a membrane that they can use to cover their uh, lower part. And then you have the male that have to bypass this membrane and use actually this huge uh, penis as an arm. On the on the video that we could get, you can clearly see the, the the male moving his penis and moving away the the tail membrane in order to reach the vulva.
1: Sort of like opening curtains to appear on the other.
2: Side. exactly you got it
1: and I, I guess if it can go on for 12 hours there must be something in it for her
2: <laughs> yes and pro- probably actually this is the way to uh, test the capacity of the male if the male can stay as long as uh, 12 hours or more uh, it will be uh, a way for her to say okay this one is really into it and is not just coming and going away mm-hmm.
1: But if there's no penetration involved here, uh, what's your best guess on how the semen is actually getting into the vagina?
2: We quite often believe that uh, the, the male part is just important and that the female genital tract is just a, a vase with a passive egg that is just floating around and waiting for the spermatozoa. But I guess we, we forget about all the, the the mechanism from the female side to actually move also physically the spermatozoa towards the fertilization site. For example, in birds, you, you don't have, except in ducks and ostrich maybe, but you don't have a Penis And uh, birds are just touching their cloaca together, and the sperm is just transferred from one cloaca to the, uh, to the other, and apparently it's working perfectly f- uh, fine.
1: So perhaps it's like a sort of an internal pump within the female that can draw the uh, the semen in.:
2: I think more than possibly uh, the, 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 the the female genital tract is is known to uh, move the the sperms toward the fertilization sites.
1: So putting all of this together, what insight does this give you about where bats fit in when it comes to the evolution of copulation?
2: We know already that bats are very diff, uh, very unique. They live super long in terms of immunity. They have lots of uh, diseases and viruses, but they do perfectly fine. So there are many aspects that are quite unique. And I guess with uh, with reproduction, we have also something that is quite uh, quite amazing. So, for example, it's known that uh, uh, bats have the possibility to store sperm for several months. They can delay ovulation. They can delay the implantation or the embryo development. So yeah, they, they are really unique in many aspects. And apparently in copulation, they are also quite, uh, quite strange. Dr. Fassel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much.
1: Dr. Nicola Fazel is a bat researcher working at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And if you want to see the video Dr. Fazel mentioned, shame on you. I mean, you can find it on our website at cbc.ca slash quirks. If you are wondering what the fashionably cautious insect will be wearing this season, it seems that black and white stripes may be de rigueur. It turns out dressing up a little, and especially adding some contrast, can turn predators' heads. And surprisingly, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it may explain why the striped pattern is so common in nature. At least, that's what a new study looking at hungry jumping spiders and stylish termites seems to show. Dr. Lisa Taylor, a behavioral ecologist at the University of Florida in Gainesville, was part of the team. Dr. Taylor, welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Let's begin with the jumping spider. Tell me a little bit about them.
3: So jumping spiders are everywhere. They're found worldwide. They are voracious little predators. So they're everywhere in everybody's backyards and gardens. Sometimes they even wander into your house. Um, they're in agricultural fields. They're pretty much everywhere you can imagine.
1: And do they really jump?
3: They do. Yep, they jump. So they can walk a little bit to get around, but when they're moving fast, they jump. So you often see them jumping through the leaf litter, jumping across the ground.
1: <laughs> and, and what do they prey on?
3: Uh, pretty much everything. So everything that's smaller than, than them, and then also sometimes things that are a little bit bigger than them.
1: Wow. Well, what is it about the jumping spider that got your attention? Made, do you want to study the relationship between what it sees and what it eats?
3: They're just really interesting. Um, they have eight eyes. Two of those eight eyes are really big and positioned in the front of their face, and those are the ones that um, in some species have color vision, but they also have these eyes on the side of their head that help them detect motion. Um, So they're just really interesting. And so um, I've just always been interested in understanding what they see, how they see, and how they use the information that they see to make decisions. So they've got information coming in through all those eight eyes, and then they have to figure out what to do with it somewhere in their brain.
1: (laughs) Now, what about this issue of contrasting black and white?
3: We're particularly interested in the black and white stripe pattern, because it's something that you see all over nature. So a lot of animals will Pick up toxins from their food or produce toxins to protect them from predators and a lot of animals that do this also advertise their toxicity using bright colors or sometimes patterns and so black and white stripes are really common way that animals that are toxic advertise their toxicity and so uh, we were really interested in finding out how jumping spiders respond to those stripe patterns kind of as a way to understand the way the jumping spiders see and interpret prey whether that has contributed to the evolution of those stripe patterns like if those stripe patterns work really well then it can protect a lot of insects and other, you know, small invertebrates from getting eaten by jumping spiders in particular.
1: Well, tell me about your setup. How did you test this?
3: Yeah, so to test this idea, we actually took small termites and we put these little paper capes on them. And so the benefits of doing things this way is that we can basically manipulate the color patterns of different termites to understand how those color patterns influence a jumping spiders' decisions to attack or not.
1: Paper capes?
3: Paper capes, yeah. So um, it's a pretty low-tech setup. We basically just punched out these little oval pieces of paper. They either were white, solid white, solid black, or had black and white stripes on them. And then we took a little bit of Elmer's glue and we just adhered them to the back of the termites. Because termites, during some stages of their development, actually have wings, like really big wings. Um, The termites were able to move around just fine with these little capes on. And so we put them in a dish, we let them wander around and then we introduced a spider. Uh, We gave each spider the choice of two black, two white, or two striped termites all moving around them, and then we asked the spider, and we looked at the spider and saw which one got their attention the fastest, and then we let the spiders actually attack the termites and see which ones they chose to attack.
1: (laughs) Using Elmer's glue to stick paper capes on the back of a termite. It sounds like a a science fair experiment an inquisitive 10-year-old would do. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot of things you can learn about the natural world using pretty low-tech methods.
1: So what was the spider's reaction to these three different choices?:
3: yeah, so um I also what I also didn't mention is that there were the termites are wandering around on a white background, and so not surprisingly, the ones the white ones kind of blended into the white background, and so both the black ones and the striped ones seem to get the spider's attention the quickest, and that's not super surprising because those are the ones that were the most highly contrasting with the background. What was interesting was that the ones that had the stripes were attacked at the lowest rates compared to either the black or the white. So that suggests that the contrast with the background is what's needed to get the attention. And then once they oriented to the termites and looked at them kind of face on with those big eyes in the front, they use the pattern to decide what to eat. And so anything with stripes, they didn't want to eat. So it suggests they're using the stripes to make a decision not to attack.
1: Why would it not attack the one that had the stripes more?
3: Yeah. um, I mean, I guess so. One of the the, um, kind of prevailing hypotheses is just that the spiders have an innate aversion to stripes, either an innate aversion to stripes or a learned aversion to stripes, basically because a lot of things out in the environment that have stripes are using those stripes to advertise their toxicity. So if they have an innate avoidance to stripes, then that would kind of protect them from wasting energy or even getting poisoned from a lot of the things that are out there that that are toxic and using stripes to say, stay away. But there's also other reasons that they might be particularly attentive to stripes and why stripes might work as a warning better than other colors um, or than other patterns. And one is that um, the stripes are just, you know, regardless of what background you're on, black and white stripes are really conspicuous. So they might be be good at both getting attention and signaling to a predator not to attack.
1: So the spiders take a good long look at things to make sure that they're, uh, this is the one I'm not (laughs) going to eat. I'm going to eat that one.
3: They do. Yeah. The way jumping spiders hunt is really interesting. So they just, they're um, typically sit and wait predators. And so when things catch their attention and those lateral eyes, then the the spider will actually swivel and look really closely at the prey with those front eyes. And in some species, those those big eyes in the front also have color vision um, and they have really good resolution. So they can see things like pattern. They can see things like color. Those side eyes don't seem to be, um, have very good vision, but they do allow the spider to detect things moving basically almost 360 degrees around it.
1: Wow. So this is happening with uh, little tiny spiders, and yet we see black and white stripes all the way up to zebras, but to large animals. Does this explain why stripes are so common in nature?
3: Yeah, I think it helps to explain why stripes are so common in nature. So people have been thinking about these ideas for a long time, thinking about the idea of warning colors and why certain warning colors and patterns work better than others, and why there seem to be these kind of universal colors and patterns that work across all animals, regardless of whether you're a bird or you're a fish or you're a lizard or whatever. But most of that work has been done on really big animals, but there's been very little work or comparatively less work done on small animals like jumping spiders. And so we have a lot of insight already from birds. I think what's really interesting is a lot of things that we're finding from jumping spiders are really similar to what we're finding from birds. So that might explain why there are kind of these universal patterns out there that just seem to be really good at, at signaling danger.
1: And I guess as your science progresses, you're just going to have to make sure you have lots of paper and Elmer's glue to continue.
3: (laughs) Yep, yep. There's a lot of things you can do on a a pretty low budget. We also need a lot of spiders and we need a lot of termites (laughs) and a lot of time.
1: Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Dr. Lisa Taylor is a behavioral ecologist from the Department of Entomology and Nematology at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Imagine you're coming home with a heavy bag of groceries on each arm and see a package at your door. You shift the bags to pick up the package, and then you somehow get the house keys out, and then, oh no, your phone rings, and it's a call you absolutely have to take. In a panic, you wish you had just one extra arm, or maybe two, or six, Dr. Octopus style, to handle all your needs at once. While this may be the stuff of science fiction for now, researchers have been exploring the very real question of what it would be like for us to have even one extra limb at our disposal. Well, now, in a simulation experiment, they've shown just how handy an extra limb can be. Katya Ivanova is one of the authors of the study. She's an assistant professor at Queen Mary University of London and a researcher at Imperial College London. Dr. Ivanova, welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Now we can all imagine situations where we could use an extra arm or two. Was there a special setting for you that inspired this study?
4: Uh, Absolutely. So we especially interested in um, robotic assisted surgery. Uh, Normally we have this task uh, where we need more than uh, two arms or two hands. However, in order to do it right now, only way is to have an assistant, so a second person to work in a team. But in some tasks, right, like surgery, um, it's not really coming handy because a surgeon may be to have a full control of all tools. If we imagine a situation when a surgeon has to have an assistant and this assistant has to be first trained, to almost treat the mind of the surgeon, how I would like to have my light, how I would like to have my suction. It is also uh, takes additional time during the surgery to communicate verbally. If I have control over all tools myself, I don't have to do it. So basically it's more efficient. Uh, also, if I have a new member of the team, this member of the team also needs to be trained every time. So uh, basically I need, we need to learn to work as a team every time when we have a new member.
1: Well, take me through your experiment. What did the extra arm in your study look like?
4: Um, right now, it's uh, just uh, um, a virtual arm on a screen. So basically, we did an experiment where we controlled virtual arms on a screen, presented on the screen, uh, and we controlled these three arms, um, two hands by robotic interfaces, and uh, we also used food to control a third arm.
1: Okay, so a person sitting at a computer screen, they have a controller in each hand and their foot on another controller, is that right? Exactly. So what kind of tasks did they have to do with the three arms?
4: So they, um, uh, they have presented these three arms on a screen, horizontally, horizontally placed a screen, and uh, they, uh, the arms in the screen were connected with a um, virtual elastic band. So they had to move the center of this triangle In direction of the target, so they had to reach the target with the three arms by um, also containing the distance between the arms.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, normally feet are not used for delicate operations the way the hands are, so uh, how well did the people do?
4: Actually, pretty well, but I would—I I need to say the interface is also quite good.
1: Okay, but but again, feet are not as, uh, as dexterous as hands, so were, was that a limitation? Uh, did it take a lot of practice for people to develop the control?
4: This is exactly uh, what we explored in the study as well. So basically, it took four sessions of training each 15 minutes, so it's about one hour over three days. They were really quite good with it. We had also another study beforehand, uh, where we ask people to control with the foot and with the arms, uh, different types of motions. And within five days, also very short training times, 15, 20 minutes, they they will be able to control it. But of course, we're saying here, um, we're speaking about a very simple task, right? So it's not really a surgery right now. So um, in this case, yes, it was quite uh, simple and natural to learn it. However, the other task could be more challenging.
1: Now, why were you doing this on a computer screen and not using an actual prosthetic limb?
4: It's a good question, but we have to f- uh, start uh, somewhere, right? So the, the first step to understand whether we're able to learn tree manipulation would be on an experiment like that uh, before we actually develop uh, all of these expensive prototypes and use actual robotics, because also using actual robotics on, uh, in, in direct contact with the human body but also their limitations. First, there are um, not uh, so many interfaces that we could use right now, ethically or from the safety uh, perspective as well. And this is fast and uh, efficient way to check the hypothesis, whether the humans can learn anti-manipulation.
1: Uh, oh, I see. So now that you've shown that the people could do it quite quickly, they could learn it uh, easily on the computer screen, what's your next step?
4: So uh we did some studies uh, also in uh, 3D, in virtual reality. So it's a little bit more closer to, uh, to what it could be. And the next step would be also to use uh, real interfaces course, the challenge is to understand what interfaces should we use uh, from robotics point of view. Should we use uh, conventional interfaces such as um, conventional robotic arms, uh, very rigid, done from metal and plastic, or should we go in the direction of soft interfaces, soft robotics, which is more compatible uh, with the human body, um, done from textiles and silicones, but which has uh, limitations on their own. For example, they are not that controllable or they cannot lift uh, that much weight.
1: Did the uh, participants in your experiment complain at all that they were, I guess, overloaded by operating so many limbs, three at once?
4: So in this particular experiment, we actually compared three manipulation with uh, working in a team of, uh, of two people. No one complained. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also evaluated a mental load of participants in the uh, first session, so in a pre-test, and also after the training, so in a post-test. And we saw that actually the mental load is getting lower because uh, people learning how to control three limbs. And they're starting to prefer almost to control all three limbs by their own instead of having partner with them who is controlling either foot or hands.
1: Oh, I see. It's better if you do it all yourself.
4: It's more efficient. Uh, and if you learn how to do it. I suppose people like to have some agency.
1: Now, in in your experiment, when they were moving around on the screen, you said it was very simple, just follow a dot. Uh, how much more difficult would it be to work in three dimensions?
4: Much more difficult. So, um, we also collaborated with um, Sorbonne University, where they have um, such interface, and also at Imperial College London, our mentor, Professor Tian Burdett, Is uh, um, now developing a system which we actually call Dr. Octopus, uh, which will have uh, four additional artificial limbs. So I suppose uh, we will have um, uh, many new experiments to go.
1: Now, surgery is a pretty delicate procedure. Would you be comfortable having surgery, maybe your appendix removed or something, by a surgeon? Using multiple arms and their feet to control things?
4: Yes, I mean after some training, why not? Because the surgeon will use um, their natural hands as usual, but the um, the foot, for example, will control something like lighting or suction. So why not?
1: Well, I guess when you know when you drive a, a vehicle with a, a standard transmission, you're using all four limbs to control a car. So you know, why not
4: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs>
1: Dr. Ivanova, thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Katya Ivanova is an assistant professor at Queen Mary University of London and a researcher at Imperial College London.
0: I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them, about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. The inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast.
1: I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, why the natural world turns out to be a fantastic pharmaceutical innovator.
5: Evolution is this massive, massive research and development project, in a sense. It's sort of R&D on massive doses of steroids.
1: By now, many parts of Canada have already had the first snowfall of the year. And when we think of snow, we think winter, cold, white. What we don't associate with snow is the color red. But that's precisely the kind of snow that Canadian ecologist Lynn Quornby has been studying. It's something you may have seen in photographs. Entire fields of snow turned eerily different shades of red, looking almost like the inside of a watermelon. In a recent study, Dr. Quornby and her colleagues tracked how much watermelon snow showed up on glaciers from 2019 to 2022, They wanted to find out whether this unusual color had an effect on how fast the glaciers around the world were melting. Dr. Cornby is a professor of molecular biology and biochemistry at Simon Fraser University. Hello and welcome back to Quirks and Quarks.
0: Hi, Bob. Thanks very much for having me back.
1: So first of all, what causes snow to turn red?
0: Well, it's a growth of microorganisms, primarily algae, an analogy would be the blooms that one sees in lakes and the ocean uh, in the summertime, blooms of microalgae, red tides, and in this instance, it's happening on the surface of the snow.
1: What, where does it come from and how does it survive on snow?
0: There are two leading hypotheses about where the algae come from. One is that they're blowing around the globe, that they're uh, maybe in reservoirs, the cysts are tucked away, in rock crevices. But the species that we've been studying in other projects in my lab, we have some evidence, it's not very strong yet, but my favorite model is that these guys overwinter as cysts underneath the snow on the substrate. And then in the spring, whether it's a trickle of water or a bit more light, whatever the signal is, that they hatch and they grow their cilia. They're very powerful swimmers. They could easily cover several meters of swimming upstream to the surface of the snow. And then once exposed to the high light at the surface, my hypothesis is they would then shed their cilia and start producing this astaxanthin, the red pigment, uh, to provide the antioxidant in the shade. The blooms don't happen until the snow starts to melt in the spring and the algae grow in the industry water between the snow crystals under the right conditions. That means uh, warm enough to have some water, cold enough to still be snow. Um, And for a long enough period, they can form blooms and snowfields and on top of glaciers.
1: What gives the algae the red color?
0: The algae that grow on the snow are actually evolutionarily related to the green algae that we see forming um, pond scum, if you will, in lakes and ponds. But the snow is a very challenging place for these algae to grow. The light is very bright, so the light reactions of photosynthesis, where a photon comes in in and excites electrons and starts the process, that's very rapid and intense. But the follow-up reactions, fixing carbon dioxide and making sugars of it, that part of the reaction is very slow because of the cold temperature. So we think that the red pigment is an adaptation to those conditions.
1: Okay, so let me see if I got this right. You're saying that red algae grows in the snow because the red color essentially works better to absorb light and protect the algae in the bright, cold environment of the snow?
0: The red actually absorbs heat, uh, and so it helps melt the snow. And it shadows, it's like a bit of an umbrella, so it will shade the chloroplast so that it doesn't get too much light.
1: Okay, and chloroplasts, those are the the, uh, devices that absorb light that contribute to photosynthesis. Exactly. Well, how were you able to identify areas with red snow in your new study?
0: So uh, my graduate student, Casey Engstrom, took a deep dive into available satellite data. And the satellite can take images across not just visible light, but uh, very detailed uh, sampling of different bandwidths for the wavelengths of light. And so Casey developed a model for interpreting uh, where was red snow and where wasn't it. And he trained uh, a model for machine learning to recognize which regions were watermelon snow and which were something else. And, um, and that's how we were able to look at the extent and the duration and the intensity um, over these four years.
1: So what areas get the red snow?
0: Well, it turns out that northwestern North America is, is one of the hotspots on the globe.
1: So it sounds like British Columbia is a hotspot.
0: It is, but red snow happens everywhere. So we can find it in Antarctica, we can find it in the Arctic. It's pretty cosmopolitan. Now,
1: if this uh, algae is covering the snow and turning it red, how is that affecting the melting of the glacier when spring comes around?
0: A number of factors influence how much it increases the melt. Uh, how intense the bloom gets. How That is, how red is it? How, what extent does it cover? How big is the bloom? And how long does it last over the course of the season? And so we were able, or Casey was able, to look at uh, those measurements and to use modeling and estimate that for this region, for Northwestern North America, uh, it's contributing to about 5% of The melt over the season.
1: Okay, so if they're contributing to about 5% of the melting of the glacier, has there been a change in that effect over time?
0: I guess the short answer is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some glaciers are melting faster, others have not been impacted. What's very clear in our data is this striking absence of large blooms in 2021. And that is the year that we had the big heat dome here. And that heat dome caused the the uh, snow to melt out before the big blooms could form.
1: So as the temperature warms, as we proceed into the future, does that mean we'll have more or less red snow?
0: Well, we might have more in the short term, but it's possible that this beautiful ecosystem... Uh, The red snow, I'll remind you, is is not just the algae, but it's many species of algae. It's fungi, bacteria, beautiful rotifers and tardigrades. It's a whole ecosystem that uh, it may be an ecosystem that we lose quite early. Um, As we saw in 2021, the, the blooms just didn't form when it was too warm.
1: So how does this effect that the algae is having on the melting glaciers, you say about 5%, how does that compare to some of the other factors that are affecting glacial melt?
0: So the contribution of algae we do in this paper provide parameters that will help glaciologists maybe tweak their models, but it is nothing that's going to cause big changes in their predictions. It's um, What is really clear is that it's the fossil fuel emissions, it's the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is really uh, warming up the planet.
1: So the red snow isn't exactly a feedback loop as we've seen with other climate phenomena.
0: Well, it is um, because the warmer things are, the more red it gets, the more red it gets, the more it warms and melts and the more the algae grow. So it is a positive feedback loop. It's just not a particularly impactful one.
1: Dr. Quornby, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, Bob.
1: Lynn Quornby is a professor of molecular biology and biochemistry at Simon Fraser University. Our planet is losing species at an alarming rate. But what are we really losing in this human-driven mass extinction? Something meaningful, certainly. The richness of our natural world has a value that can't be counted in money. It's aesthetic, even spiritual. But that's not to say there aren't powerful, practical arguments for preserving natural ecosystems and biodiversity. An important one is that we lose opportunities to take advantage of three billion years of evolutionary innovation, and that has important implications for human health. You might not know that about half of all the drugs in our modern pharmacopoeia were inspired by nature. A plant called the foxglove produces digitalis used to control irregular heartbeats. Aspirin was synthesized to provide a purer alternative to the salicylic acid extract produced from willow bark. And then there are antibiotics. 75% of currently approved antibiotics originate in nature. What this means is that the remaining, mostly unstudied, diversity of life on Earth represents a vast, untapped reservoir of potentially useful biological molecules and compounds that could be medically important. Nowhere is that more true than in our oceans. Of course, it's a tricky environment to work in, but in a new proof-of-concept study, scientists in France have developed and tested a tool to sniff the seawater to sample the cornucopia of unknown chemicals marine organisms release. Dr. Charlotte Simler helped to lead a team that tested their device called Smell, on sea sponges in the Mediterranean. She's a natural product chemist at the French National Center's Mediterranean Institute for Biodiversity and Ecology in Marseille. Hello, Dr. Simler. Welcome to our program.
6: Hello, Bob. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Why do you need a special new device to sample the chemical compounds a sea sponge releases?
6: Well, there are several objectives that we pursued by um, developing this device, actually. The first one is that we know that the marine invertebrates that are fixed at the bottom of the sea, they are known to produce a variety of really original molecules that have inspired chemists and biologists like seeking to discover new molecules for their therapeutic potentials, for example.
1: So why sea sponges in particular?
6: So sea sponges are one of the most prolific producers of those really interesting compounds. Um, We know that they are producing a molecule for their defensive and communication strategies. But in the ecosystem, they are also really impressive um, filter feeders, meaning that they will take the food from... Particles that are around them in the sea, diluted in the sea. And by doing so and through their metabolic activity, they will release compounds into the seawater.
1: Now, why is it a challenge to try to get those molecules? I mean, couldn't you just sample the seawater itself?
6: It's a challenge because once the compound is dilute, is, is produced and released in, in the marine environment, it, it is really diluted in the large volume of seawater. And it will be mixed with a lot of molecules that are produced either by microorganisms or other um, invertebrates or uh, species living nearby. And the challenge will be actually to know where they are coming from, what kind of organism are in fact producing these compounds.
1: Well, walk me through the, uh, the eye smell device. How does it actually work?
6: So the ice device is actually a system that has an enclosed chamber to delimit a zone of interest around the species that we want to study, for example, or for which we want to collect the molecules that are released in seawater. And um, just above this chamber, you have um, disks that are placed uh, in, placed in holders. So these disks are like cotton pads and they are designed to um, absorb and capture molecules that are passing through this disk. And then all the filters are connected through tubings and valve to a pump that is activated underwater by a single push button um, and by the scuba diver. So one of the key features is that this device um, can travel with a scuba diver and be activated and used by a single scuba
1: diver. Oh, I see. And
6: what we found out that is the chemistry is very different when it's um, collected in seawater compared to when we collect a little bit of marine organism and study its chemical composition.
1: So I'm, I'm just trying to picture that. So a diver has this device in their hand, and what they they put it over top of the the sea sponge.
6: Exactly. So they will target the species of interest, and they will place uh, the chamber just above the species, and then it will uh, that diver will activate the pump, and by doing so, the seawater will go from the marine organism towards the cotton pads or the solid extraction disk that we use back outside the chamber. So the direction is always towards the pad so that molecules that are dissolved around, produced and released by the marine organism, goes unidirectionally towards the cotton pad and get accumulated on this extraction disk.
1: So after you did the collection of the seawater coming from the sponge, how many different chemicals did you find?
6: So there was a lot of different chemicals. We were mainly interested in uh, what we could identify as being produced by the sponge species first. We were really happy about it because we could actually uh, find a subset of all the compounds known to be produced by the sponge in the seawater. Um, We could even classify the sponge based on the diversity of compounds we could recover. And we also found out that um, among the compounds that we were able to identify, some of them were slightly different from what the sponge is known to produce, which for us will be a source of new chemicals, new compounds that would be worth exploring uh, further.
1: Hmm. Can you give me an example of how a compound from a marine organism uh, could be useful for biomedical or pharmaceutical research?
6: Well, this is, um, this is really an, an interesting question. And for sponges, for example, um, there are compounds that are nowadays used as anti-cancer drugs that are produced by sponge or have been inspired by a structure and compound produced by sponges. So the idea behind it is to say that when a marine organism is producing a compound, it could be very potent from a biological point of view because it produces it in an environment where everything is quite rapidly diluted. So to be active, say to be cytotoxic or to act, for example, if a compound is released by a marine organism to help the marine organism thrive and access to food, some of those compounds might be toxic for other species. It's like a defense and competition uh, behavior. And the inspiration was to say that maybe we could... Um, Characterize this compound and test whether this compound would be interesting as a cytotoxic potential anti cancer drug for human
1: application. So, you managed to use your eye smell device on a sponge. How widely could it be used on other marine species?
6: Well, actually, it could be used on any kind of other species for which we want to know if they are releasing their compounds. We tried on sponge because we know they are producing a lot of diverse compounds but maybe we could try to test it over cohort species or over other filter feeder um, marine organisms such as sea skirts, for example, um, algae, um, and we can uh, actually continue to probe and map the chemical diversity of marine organisms by using this device. And also, um, I think we know that a lot of really interesting compounds are also produced by microorganisms, and, and the ocean is full of different types of microorganisms. So for that, we, we would have a lot of opportunities for research um, in, in, to that
1: end. Dr. Simler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Charlotte Simler is a natural product chemist at the French National Center's Mediterranean Institute for Biodiversity and Ecology in Marseille. Now, it's not just exotic chemicals produced by marine organisms that could hold the key to new drugs and treatments. With more than 8.7 million animal species on our planet, nature's done a lot of tinkering. There could be a lot of answers to questions about human health in nature, if we looked for them more systematically. The key, according to Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, is to look at what's making us sick and look at how nature has dealt with those problems when inevitably they've come up before. Evolution, after all, has done many more biology experiments than humans ever will, and she thinks the biodiversity of the natural world can be read for their results. Dr. Natterson Horowitz is a cardiologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of California in Los Angeles. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
5: Oh, I'm delighted to be here.
1: How can understanding evolution help us better understand why we seem to be seeing so many modern health problems like cancer, heart disease, and diabetes?
5: Well, evolution uh, is a process that has created the biodiversity on earth and the environment in which our human biology evolved it is not the same environment in which we find ourselves now so we evolved uh, in an environment where there were calories were hard to come by right and as a consequence our metabolism is adapted to an environment where there isn't enough to eat sometimes well what do we have today we have this environment where there is everywhere there, there is food, and so a mismatch occurs. And so we see that obesity and diseases related to overfeeding, all of those things are, in a sense, a kind of a consequence of evolution meeting modern-day life. So as we begin to sort of think in an evolutionary way, we can decode and understand why we get sick.
1: Well, you say the same evolutionary principles have also given rise to solutions to these problems, so how so?
5: Right. This is the really exciting part. Biodiversity of, you know, that we're looking at in other animals includes the physiology that's not visible from the outside, but which contains countless adaptations, which can be thought of, as you said, as solutions for the challenges that these animals find in their environments. If we can find a way to connect those adaptations in those other species To the challenges in biomedicine today, those very difficult problems that we haven't been able to solve yet, we can potentially find new avenues to treat and prevent disease.
1: So I guess nature's done a lot of experimenting, testing, and innovating over the eons to solve these problems.
5: (laughs) Precisely. Evolution is this massive, massive research and development project, in a sense. It's sort of R&D on massive doses of steroids.
1: Okay. Well, let's look at some examples of some of the solutions in nature for these human diseases that I mentioned. Let's start with cancer. Where would we find uh, some solutions to that problem?
5: There was, in the 1970s, a British epidemiologist, a guy named Richard Pito, and he observed that if every time a cell divides, there's a chance for mutation, and that with a mutation, there can be the possibility of cancer forming, and then cancer is this sort of unregulated division of cells leading to to all of these health issues. He said, well, if every time a cell divides, there's a chance of a cancer-causing mutation, then animals who are very, very big, like an elephant, let's say, that would require many more cell divisions to reach its mature size than, say, a mouse. He said, wouldn't we predict that those very big animals, shouldn't they all be just riddled with cancer? And that was called Pito's paradox. And for a long time, people sort of thought that was interesting. The implication being that these larger animals evolved cancer-fighting adaptations, right? Solutions to that challenge. But nobody had kind of been able to prove that. Then several years ago, a number of groups started looking at the African elephant. And it turns out that the African elephant has multiple copies of a cancer suppressor gene that is very important in our species and others. And all of a sudden it really had opened the door to this idea that, aha, there is a cancer suppressive mechanism in elephants. And of course, since then, other cancer suppression mechanisms have been found in a number of other animals.
1: Wow. Okay. That's cancer. What about heart disease?
5: Right, so heart disease is the leading cause of death in our species, and um, one form of heart disease is heart failure. There's a particular type of heart failure that is more common in women, and high blood pressure exerts a force on the, the heart's pumping muscle, which becomes thicker and thicker, and when it becomes thicker, it starts to change, it becomes stiff, and over time, patients become short of breath, their exercise ability decreases, they're really symptomatic. Well, if we turn to the natural world, um, we could ask ourselves, well, are there any other animals that deal with high blood pressure? And it turns out the modern giraffe species with their iconically long neck, right? They actually have the highest normal blood pressure of any animal on Earth, up to 300 over 250 or something. So it's very, very high.
1: And that's just because they have to pump blood all the way up that neck to get to the head.
5: That's right. It's almost like two and a half to three meters from the left ventricle that's down in their body between their two front legs and the brain. Absolutely right.
1: So how does the giraffe get around heart disease then?
5: Right. So because the heart has to push vertically, it, it's a, that's the high blood pressure that it faces. And you know what? The giraffe ventricle is thick compared to what you might imagine if it didn't have the high neck. So that high blood pressure is causing the ventricle to thicken. However, that ventricle does not appear to be stiff and in our species in my patients when a woman comes to me and she's had high blood pressure a long period of time her heart her ventricle is thick it is stiff it's got fibrosis but these giraffes they have a high blood pressure but they don't have a stiff ventricle and this has um, been a really intriguing finding because of course a giraffe has to be able to flee predators you know 40 kilometers an hour so it appears that the giraffe have evolved adaptations that may suppress fibrosis, right, that protect its heart from the adverse effects of high blood pressure.
1: Okay, so the giraffe gets around heart disease, the elephant isn't riddled with cancerous tumors. What about diabetes? What animal do we look to for that?
5: Right. Well, there's actually a Canadian biologist, since I'm talking to a Canadian radio, um, a guy named Michael A. Singer, and he wrote a book about natural animal models and their relevance to clinical medicine. And he brought up the, the hummingbird. The hummingbird, of course, is, you know, their heart rate is like 1,000 or 1,200 beats per minute. And they have very, very high blood sugars. The level of blood sugar that you would see in a severe diabetic human, right? But they don't have heart disease that happens to human patients who have high blood sugars, diabetes, they don't have the kidney disease. So these birds appear to have evolved adaptations to high serum blood sugar without the consequences that we see in diabetes in humans.
1: So how do we take these adaptations that nature's come up with to improve our own health for things like cancer, heart disease, and diabetes?
5: Well, one example comes from the world of cancer medicine and this elephant story to synthesize P53, which is this cancer suppression gene, and find ways to deliver it to human patients. In the case of the giraffe, there was a wonderful paper that was published about two years ago where they found the genes that were unique to the giraffe that seemed to be involved in protection against the effects of high blood pressure. And they crispered them into mice and they exposed the mice to high blood pressure. And what they found was that these mice who had this giraffe gene were resistant to heart failure, to the kind of fibrosis and the stiffening. And to me, that paper is really a sign that we are moving forward, that there is now a path where modern technology and cutting-edge science, CRISPR, etc., can meet evolution, right? These evolved adaptations that have been solving problems for hundreds of millions of years. And we can bring those two things together to find solutions. So if we allow biodiversity to, you know, the the reduction in diversity, if we allow that to continue, what we're doing is basically preventing ourselves from accessing solutions that, that we otherwise would have.
1: Dr. Natterson Horowitz, thank you so much for your time.
5: Oh, a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz is a cardiologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of California in Los Angeles. And that's it for Quirks and Quirks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.